This evening I'd like to share some reflections on a what for me is a important area of practice and my practice, though it wasn't always the case that this was so. The uh, and invite you to perhaps engage a little bit in it too. And the area of practice I have in mind is the the realm of what we could call devotional practice. And uh, I think it's something that probably some of you, certainly I, when I first encountered these teachings, I was uh, not particularly enthused about that sort of thing. In fact, I think I probably managed to sign up for a retreat and to stay at it, supported in quite a large degree by the fact that there were no Buddha images. There was no devotional practice going on. There was nothing that looked particularly of that sort. But it's something I've come to really deeply appreciate, something that I've found incredibly uh, helpful. And it's also something I was realizing I've not really shared very much about before in this kind of context. So uh, kind of interesting to enter into some new ground here. We probably have a range of different responses to the idea, devotional practice. We may have some uh, quite well-founded concerns about the problems associated with blind devotion or with uh, practices that might look like empty rites and rituals. But the quality of devotion itself is something perhaps we recognize as important, the quality of dedication that comes when from a a deep and profound loving appreciation of something or something, something or someone, we find ourselves moved and drawn, inspired to give, to offer to extend ourselves or our life towards or in support of that person, that thing that we feel devoted to. And so we may have questions about what we think it might be wise to be devoted to, but I think there's something in our hearts, and certainly it's been for me a a lovely journey of discovery of that quality of devotion in my practice and in my my life, and that's uh, part of why I wish to, to share this or explore this theme this evening, that what it is we might feel moved to be or open to being devoted to might vary. It might not look like something traditional and uh, for anyone who might have grown up in the context of a religious culture that demanded or imposed a certain kind of adherence to 
any number of forms. Just sort this out. Seed will edit that bit out. <laughs> Unless I tell him it's one of the best bits. <laughs> hmm. Gosh, it's interesting when one's mind goes quiet and whatever it was was being said that sounded possibly interesting or like it was leading somewhere. You ever have that experience where suddenly, gosh, where was that? Where did that go? So this, this quality of, of de- or this possibility of devotional practice, what might we be devoted to? What might it be that touches us? Yes, if, we, if we've had some form of being coerced in that regard or compelled, we may have quite a strong, almost... Uh, phobic resistance to anything like that and uh, I think respecting that I'm generally rather hesitant to encourage people too much in that direction unless they express an interest in it themselves individually Um, so uh, hence as I said it's not something I so often speak about in this kind of a situation to have an image of the Buddha here and uh, not just the Buddha perhaps you've noticed the shrine's got a say an addition, perhaps we might say an upgrade. (laughs) I think it's important that we acknowledge that when we we, we look to something to see what touches our heart, we have to really listen and support a sense of feeling that what it is we can actually connect with. And so I brought an alternative or additional Rupa. Rupa means form, the Buddha Rupa that's already here. And with the Buddha is uh, Kuan Yin, who uh, is a, an embodiment of compassion, awakened, enlightened compassion, who has a feminine aspect, but also sometimes recognized as having a, a masculine or non-gender specific aspect. And so uh, represents perhaps some of the ways in which may, we may see or know ourselves. And in wanting to bring Kuan Yin to the, to the space of this uh, meditation hall and to be here for the talk, I was remembering the, uh, what for me, deeply touching experience of, of bringing from uh, India when I was, uh, I'd been teaching in India something long time ago now, this particular trip. And I came back with a small Tara image, and Tara is a, another sort of feminine Buddha image and gave this this little bronze rupa statue to Catherine. And just, I was struck by how, how it moved her so deeply to see this feminine expression of an awakened human being and really felt the importance of, and as Pascal spoken about in other ways, that sense of that what's here represents what we recognize, how we know ourselves, because it's really important that if we practice in a devotional way with regard to to Buddha, that we understand that that's something that has a very 
deep and profound relationship to what we are and to what is possible for each one of us. And it's not about something other or apart from us. So, the teacher who I probably learned the most about devotional practice from was a very, very dear Buddhist monk, Ajahn Suchito. He's an Englishman who was for many years the abbot of a monastery in England, but he's now retired as abbot and is uh, enjoying some well-earned space for his practice and other things. And he teaches here at IMS now and then. Some of you may know him. So I just kind of wish to name and evoke his teaching and presence here because uh, what I'd like to do is offer a practice which is the traditional way he would always begin the morning when I spent time in his monastery or when he was teaching here or elsewhere, I'm sure. Much the same a sense of a dedication of one's practice at the beginning of the day or the beginning of a retreat or the beginning of an evening. And it involves a little chanting and a little bowing and it's something I'm going to do and you're not expected to join in, though if it's something you know or like, you can join in so far as you can. But uh, I'll then just reflect a little bit on what's in that for me. But before I do that, I'd like to... um, just say how lovely it is to have the, the incredible breadth of beings we have here. And in so many different ways, there feels like a real width and breadth of humanity in the space that we have here, that we've been sharing together. And one particular dimension that I was reflecting on, which are number of people commented on and the staff when the retreat was coming. Actually, there's quite a good range of ages here, among other things. And for some years, there was some real concern as to whether young people might think this was sort of a, an aging hippie sort of thing and uh, not really be too interested in it. Um, the youngest person I ever had come and do a nine-day retreat like this with me was a 15-year-old young woman and a remarkable young woman who I knew somewhat because she'd been attending other kinds of courses that weren't full-on retreats. But she came and did a retreat like this. And uh, the eldest, I think, interestingly, was, I think, my grandmother, who at age 91 did her first Vipassana retreat. 93, Catherine says. She was 93 when she did her first Vipassana retreat with Catherine and I in Sweden, which is where she lives um, for 10 months of the year, generally. And... uh, Our range here isn't quite that wide, but we have a range of uh, over half a century between the youngest and the elder of our community. And so I'd like to ask, uh, I've spoken to these people and they've kindly uh, agreed to come and light a candle. So uh, I haven't quite spotted Carolyn, but I know you're here, Carolyn and Alex. If you'd like to come up as the elder of our community and the... uh, the younger, if that's the word, elder and younger. And uh, if you'd like to, I'm not quite sure of the best way to light it. We have a, a lighter here. If you'd like to take it, place it on the altar somewhere, and then you can either light it from the candle there if you like, or we have a lighter. I don't know what you think would work best, but yeah, I'd use a candle if it were me, sure. 
We okay, you have to hold that in and then pull the trigger. This is a tricky business. Is that all right? Maybe you want to take it out of the container. Thank you. And is there anyone else who might like to? Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Carolyn. Anyone else? There's one more candle here. If anyone else would like to come and light a candle, I will be the other person if no one else stands up. But uh, please come, Erin. And if you like, you could put this one in the middle. teaching which he expounded so well, and to the blessed one's disciples who have practiced well, to these, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, we render with offerings our rightful homage. It is well for us that the Blessed One, having attained liberation, still had compassion for later generations. May these simple offerings be accepted for our long-lasting benefit and for the happiness it gives us. The Lord, the perfectly enlightened and blessed one, I render homage to the Buddha, the blessed one. The teaching so completely explained by him I bow to the Dhamma. The Blessed One's disciples who have practiced well, I bow to the Sangha.
the blessed one's disciples who have practiced well. I bow to the Sangha. It's very sweet for me to just, uh, in a way, offer that practice, both in the sense of uh, chanting to the, the Buddha image here, but equally as an offering to this retreat and community here. And I'd like to just reflect a little on some of the aspects of what I've found useful helpful, important in this kind of practice along the way. I can notice there's some part of me tempted to make a little joke about the fact that there's a slightly different uh, experience of musicality between Catherine or Pascal's (laughs) chanting and myself, but I'm not going to make a joke about that. but uh, just very aware that the, the possibility of expressing something of what, one's lo- what one loves and appreciates or feels devotion towards isn't dependent on being able to produce a particularly pristine version of it. <laughs> and I was really curious whether I'd feel what I often feel when I chant that with knowing there was a hundred and something people watching. And uh, it was actually really sweet to notice how the quality of that practice that I've done over many years actually is something very accessible. What it offers me is actually like it's right there. And I'm not assuming or imagining that much of that was what you might have received from it and hearing or watching, but I'm not assuming it's impossible either. But the, uh, the process of allowing a sense of what we really love and value and appreciate, what we want to maybe dedicate our life to, to allow that to be felt, to be expressed in, in voice and with body, in the form that's used there. And it's, a, of course, an English translation of a very traditional form of just... Uh, dedicating the offerings at the beginning of the day or beginning of a practice. And in just some of the, the, I could say, the sentiments or some of what's contained with it, I find a lot, of, a lot of value, a lot of interest. When I, when I bow down in this way, there's, a, there's really a sense of, of some kind of connection that happens in the sense of people who have done this people like us who have done this in a slightly different language and possibly with a little more tonality, but maybe not, for thousands of years. And it's, it's like, oh, there's this, it's almost like there's a, there's a current that's there. There's a, there's a stream of human experience 
of, of sharing something, of expressing something, of bringing forth something in a very, for me, what's a very beautiful way. And so there's this connection with something larger. And then just in really contemplating the, the Buddha, the image of the Buddha, that representation of awakened humanity. There's a moment that I, I just try and pause before I turn to give a talk. And there's both a sort of, you know, okay, it's up to you now. It's like, this isn't my dharma. I didn't make this up. I didn't come up with this. Um, I'm really fortunate to have had people share this with me, and I'm equally incredibly fortunate to be able to share it with others. But that some sense of just something that's passing through here, something that's passing through, hopefully relatively clearly, relatively cleanly. And that, and, uh, you know, the Buddha, the, the, the reference to, you know, the Lord, it has all sorts of associations from it for us, some of them probably not what we would wish to bring, whether it be landlords or, you know, the, the Lord of the manor who might sort of be rather full of uh, kinds of things we wouldn't really want to emulate. That association between the language of lord and nobility, aristocracy, that it originally points to something understood to be a spiritual quality of of nobility. And this is something the Buddha embodied. And he was a very human being. It's really important that when we say, you know, like because Catherine was saying her association with with Lord was was it was it was a a Christian association that was referring to divine, omnipotent, um, all-seeing, and all-powerful sort of deity, God, being. But it's not that kind of being we're referring to when we talk about the Buddha. One of the earliest thoughts that arose for the Buddha after his enlightenment, I've pondered on this many times, was, you know, what I've understood here, this is again paraphrasing us. Thanks, thanks Pascal, for suggesting that way of describing it because I'm regularly quoting the Buddha, but it's not exactly what he said. But then we don't actually know exactly what he said. So this is the version that I understand. He said... Gosh, what I've understood is profound, it's deep. <coughs> if I try to teach this to others, they won't understand. And that will be troubling to me. I don't think I'll do that. And I've often pondered, you know, this. he's just awakened, he's just discovered this remarkable liberation. And his thought is, well, if people don't get it, that's going to bug me, so I won't, do, I won't teach them about it. <laughs> Fortunately, it seems that uh, that particular thought, it seems like a very human thought to me, was followed by something beautiful, compassionate in the sense of, oh, maybe some will understand. I've got a tickle in my throat and um, 
He didn't say that. been settling and getting better all day, but uh, I guess it's uh, found its moment. <coughs> Excuse me. And so that, that response of compassion arising to teach the Dharma for those with little dust before their eyes who could see, who would understand. We see this marriage of something very human that thinks teaching the Dharma is going to be hard work, not for me. And, oh, actually this will touch, this will transform. (coughs) The lives of some beings. And that's worth it. That's worth the trouble it might be requiring for me, the trouble it might involve. Thank you. just remembering the conversation about the sort of enthusiasm for really good quality clear recordings for Dharmacy <laughs> I was having with a couple of the staff of yesterday I think so the first uh, piece I just wanted to name that sense of compassion of the Buddha and how incredibly fortunate I feel, to have received the Dharma and to have a moment to just say thank you. I might have said this a few nights ago, but just something about saying thank you. And so many of you, having taken that opportunity in different ways to express that to myself and I'm sure to others also, but that sense for me of, yeah, thank you, wow, thank you. Look up, but you know, thank you. So that sense of, yes, I've received that, but I also feel like I want to allow that also to be shared with uh, where this comes from. The blessed one's disciples who have practiced well. I love that line. It's sad for me sometimes to see how often I 
encounter someone describing their practice as imagining it as other than that, having measured it according to some idea and found it less than what they thought it should be. It's really understandable, of course. We've talked about the patterns that lead to this, but there's a way in which I, I just so wish I had a way to really let you know that you're doing really well. Just in being here. Just in sitting in the midst of what you're sitting in. And whatever model or idea you have about what that should look like or how that should unfold or what experience or outcome or insight or heart opening you think that's supposed to be producing, if that could all just be held really lightly. And I don't know how to to let you know that, but I really wish I could, all of you. And sometimes it's, it's in, you know, the words aren't going to do it for us. We've got good ways of batting them off. No, no, he's talking about the other ones, not me. He doesn't know what goes on in my mind. <laughs> Joseph Goldstein, the, you know, in a way, the, probably the most widely revered and respected elder within our tradition. And I don't say that in disrespect of other great and wonderful elders in the tradition, but I think Joseph probably has that place. I'm not sure if he said this in a Dharma talk, but I don't think it was a, a private conversation, so it's okay to share. I thought he might have said it in a Dharma talk anyway, but he certainly once said, and I could echo, but um, he said, you know, if my students knew what goes on in my mind while I'm sitting here, they wouldn't come on my retreats. the blessed one's disciples. You might not think of yourself as a disciple of the blessed one. That's okay. It's not required. (laughs) Though you're in a lineage, you're in a stream, you're part of a current and a flow that really is traveling through the heart of human existence and the heart of human beings. And sometimes that, that, that movement, that flow wants to express itself and that appreciation and that gratitude and that I wish to say thank you and this is part of what's expressed in the, in the devotional practice I think I mentioned a few nights ago a teacher in India, Manindra G G is like a honorific, respectful, appreciative sort of thing like saying sir but in Indian it's a G at the end of the name, Manindra G. And uh, I had a very remarkable, he, he was a very important teacher for me. He was a really important teacher for me. And uh, it was very interesting how I encountered him. I, I actually, I think I mentioned I traveled to Calcutta to meet my grandmother um, when I was first in India. And I was also aware that there was a, a well-known meditation teacher, very much loved. He was actually one of the uh, primary teachers of Joseph. Her name was Manindra. And I went to the place where Manindra was hanging out. This was even before I met my grandmother. And he wasn't there. So I looked around and I found there was another retreat going on somewhere with some other teacher I'd never heard of, a teacher by the name of Goenka. <laughs> and I went and sat a 10-day retreat with this teacher. 
he wasn't actually there, it was recordings of his teaching, but there was a, an assistant teacher there who was leading it. And there was this other guy sitting there wearing white. You know, everyone else was Indian, there wasn't another. Actually, no, there was another two Europeans, but they left after the second day. So there on, for the remainder of the retreat, I was the only European, the only uh, non-Indian um, person on the retreat. And this person in white just sat there the whole time. Didn't say anything, didn't do anything, didn't give any input to the retreat. At the end of it, he came up to me and said, come and see me. And my first response was, why would I want to come and see you? <laughs> then he handed me this card, and it said, Anagarika, no, Acharya, Anagarika, Munindra. Oh, wow, Anagarika is someone who's renounced the home life, so he's living in a very simple renunciation life, and Acharya is teacher. I said, because it took me a couple of big Indian words that I didn't know to get to Munindra. You know, how did that happen? I went looking for him and he wasn't there. He found me. And he had no clue who I was. That preceded the encounter I described a few days ago, where my grandmother and I then went to visit him. I loved Melindra. I really loved him. I still actually really love him. He's been dead quite some years now. Something very powerful happens when someone touches us in that way. I didn't actually learn a lot about devotional practice from him, but I, it wasn't something he was teaching. He was just bare bones mindfulness practice. In fact, the first retreat I sat with him, he taught the whole thing in Bengali. Didn't understand a word. <laughs> and still I loved him. And I loved him. He just said, you know what you're doing. He didn't actually realize that I didn't know what I was doing. But he said, you know what you're doing. You've done a few retreats before. Just get on with it. And when I remember him, when I just turned my mind to that teacher, what he offered for me, it was something very precious. It was very simple. It was very human in a way that other teachers I'd met up until then were somewhat more somehow projecting a sense of being something more than human, I think. It took me a little while to figure that out, because at first I was quite keen on the idea that my teacher might be something more than an ordinary human being. But that was a bit of a setup for what could be the topic of another talk, but I won't get too far down here. But certainly Menindra's humanity was very, very clearly there. And so devotional practice, what it is to really allow that sense of what we love, what we maybe feel devoted to, to come forth. One of the things I've learned is that that sense of offering is incredibly powerful. The line in that, that dedication of offering, may these simple offerings be accepted for our long-lasting benefit and for the happiness it gives us. It's kind of, it's an interesting sort of association to have with lighting some candles and putting them on an altar. For my long-lasting benefit, what could this mean? 
And yet it's really interesting. When one gives something, when one makes an offering, and that's part of what devotional practice is about, is making an offering. In the embodying through action, even in a simple or small way, in the embodying through action something that has meaning and value in our heart, what it does is it actually connects us more deeply to that which we value. By having just given a little something to someone, even if it's just a small thing, or to the, the Buddha, or what the Buddha represents in his, in her, in their expression of the potential for being an awakened human being that is within us all. And just honoring that, just appreciating what has come through that awakened human capacity to touch my life that I know, that it also speaks to what more may yet be discovered and be possible. And somehow the, the trust, the faith, the, well, that isn't even quite the right word, but it's like the felt knowing of that actually becomes stronger through the expressing of it, through the living of it. What we live, what we express in our life, we deepen our access to. This is true of all understanding. This is true of all things. Actually, whether wholesome or unwholesome, the more we live them in our life, the deeper they become embedded into our heart and to our mind into our existence. And so just in a very simple way, we can kind of deepen a connection and there's a happiness that comes from it that's just very simple. Having done this so many times over many years and with this particular Buddha here and this Kuan Yin image here, both of whom I have had relationship to in very particular and for me significant ways, I borrowed the Kuan Yin from the front office. I did ask them first, and they were happy for her to come and join us. Him, her, she, it, Kuan Yin, and the Buddha here. They. Maybe something to do with what's going on in this cold-like thing, but uh, I've got to stop pausing because if I pause, whatever was happening stops. And uh, probably we'll start again. Yeah, there's that sense of happiness that can come just from having come to be in the presence of something with wholesome qualities in the heart. It's a very interesting thing. It took me a while to figure out how this worked. But by coming with a sense of appreciation, gratitude, or just... Simple, sort of bowing down, a sense of humility, and just presenting in that way and coming, and sometimes really feeling it, and other times not so much. What's really interesting, it's like opening a bank account for your heart. And just every time you come along, you just make a deposit of a few good qualities, and you offer up your gratitude and your moments of struggle, and your this, and you just kind of offer these good qualities of appreciation, of devotion, and then. What I found quite amazing is I can come and sit down and I'm not necessarily in contact with that. It's not necessarily there in my heart, but it's almost like if I turn up and over here I'm in overdraft, I just, it kind of, it's like I get to make a withdrawal from the bank account. It kind of just it transmits it back. It gives it back because it's there because I've somehow infused it, given it meaning. In one sense, it's just a piece of random material. The same could happen, of course, with a 
a plant, an image, a piece of stone, anything at all. But something about that way of relating to it has transformed it and has actually transformed me or one in that process because we now have a relationship with something where a certain quality is in the field, in the space, in the shape. So interestingly, I can make my deposits to one shape like this and then another one somewhere else on another part of the world allows me to take a withdrawal. It's, really, it's you know, better than ATMs. No charges, no interest. I'm very interesting how that works. I think there's something real about it. This isn't just an idea I've had, I don't think. And so that's part of what I was um, connecting with when I come and sit here in the seat. It's like, okay, this is a seat that there's some, some potency, some power, there's a connection, there's a transmission that's here for me. And then bringing together with that sense of these qualities that are here, there's a sense of the potency of making something physical, bringing the body, embodying what it is that we're doing. We've talked about this in lots of ways. and We've used some particular ways of holding the body. In certain groups, quite a few I've spoken about, different ways we can reorganize our body as a way of connecting with certain qualities. And um, we've, you know, spoken about qualities of uprightness and, you know, embodying uprightness, embodying ease. What it means to actually bring one's hands together before one's heart, that sense of bringing together the different sides, or dimensions or aspects, placing them in front of us and then, you know, what it is to do this, if we really feel into it, it's like to place this thing down there. And you know, if there's a lot of stuff going up in here, sometimes, sometimes it needs earthing. You know, just like put it on the earth, bow it down, just let the earth hold all that thinking stuff. Something about putting the head below the heart. Most creatures spend quite a lot of time that way. Don't ask, we got upright, got a head on top, and somehow we can think that it's what's driving the show. Perhaps we've had a few inklings along this retreat that that's not entirely true. Something about putting the head down. It's also a relief. It's such a relief sometimes. You know, the head gets heavy. Oh, it's carrying a lot of stuff around up here. Well, sometimes it's just such a relief to put one's head on the ground. Put one's head on the ground and just breathe out. And that humility, that sense of bowing down to. Not something other, not something outside of us. Something maybe greater than, larger than, or the full expression of what we may one day be more able to be. Bowing to that. And that humility isn't a 
negation or in fact a abandonment of self-respect or self-cherishing. Not a subjugation to some overlord, you know. Lord Vader, I think they called him in Star Wars, you know. Darth Vader was the Lord, you know. We're not talking about that kind of Lord here. It's not about a self-negating. But it's almost like finding our way closer to what we come from. The earth that we grow out of the, you know, humility and humus. The, what you find in the forest where all the leaves are slowly composting down. But out of which the trees grow and the plants emerge and the whole cycle of life being nourished emerges out of that earthy stuff. And just kind of coming back to it. Coming back to it, putting one's head on the earth. You might like to try it sometime. It doesn't have to be here and now. While connected with the heart, while that sense of what one loves is really present, is really alive. And I think there's a natural sense that comes out of that of wanting to really give one's life, dedicate one's life, offer one's life to what it is that's most important, most real. What it is that we value, that we cherish, that we love the most. So let that be at the center. Let that be at the core. Let that be at the heart of what our life turns on, what our life moves around or through. And in these teachings in this tradition, you know, we talk about compassion. We've spoken about that sense of a, a deep care for the welfare and well-being of others and of life. Ourselves, each other, those we're close to and those far distant from us. Those that appear similar and those that seem quite other to us in any of the ways that may arise. To really have a sense of offering, of dedicating one's life to the welfare of all beings, of all of life. There's a kind of a completion, there's a kind of a fulfillment in the heart that happens when that takes place. It doesn't mean we do it perfectly. It doesn't mean we we have to fulfill some ideal or some idea. But there's a kind of a relief that happens when we just say, yes, actually, I am going to live from what I love. I am going to let what feels most important inform my important, significant decisions. And to know, again, it's a real relief that the, the cost that might occasionally or sometimes significant cost that might involve is a cost worth paying because it's the cost of not giving our life to what we really most love is, is actually something ultimately unbearable. But it's not something... Uh, and I use that word, it's quite strong, I, I understand. Um, it's unbearable for a good reason because it will keep 
pulling us back to that, to say, what about this that you love, that you care about? Where's the place for this in your life? If we keep listening to that, if we keep making space for that, being open to understanding how and what that might be for us, the way the path opens up, what we're looking for comes to find us. Perhaps this Manindra came and found me. So this evening, I'd like to invite you to join in a, a little ceremony together. And this is a different kind of ritual than the, the devotional practice, but it has a similar quality in a certain way. That, uh, that sense of dedicating, what we dedicate our life to, what we let our life rest in, and what we wish to offer it to. We touched on this on the New Year's Eve, the uh, taking refuge in Buddha, awakened potentiality, as well as the human expression of that, historical, awakened human beings. The Dharma, the way things are, and the teachings and practices that guide and point to living in this way. And the Sangha, the disciples of awakening, we can say, who have practiced well. That this is something we can let our heart rest in. And when our heart can rest in this, it naturally wants to find ways to express what we feel dedicated to. And so... So we're going to have a what's called a blessing cord ceremony, which we didn't have on New Year's Eve to mean we could get to bed a little earlier. Some of you may have been disappointed. Some of you may have been relieved we didn't do that, but we're going to do that now. <laughs> and what it will involve is um, you're having the opportunity to come and be given a cord by uh, Catherine or Pascal or myself. They'll come and join me and uh, we'll do some chanting when you come and can receive one of these chords. Um, Nice red cord that you can uh, tie a knot for the Buddha if you wish, for the Dharma if you wish, for the Sangha if you wish, in the cord. That's traditional. And if you'd like to tie another knot for your aspiration or what you might have a sense of wanting to dedicate yourself to in this year or in your life, just some way to, in a way, take that particular intentionality here as we come to the end of the retreat and just place it into something that can support you in holding it. And then you'll be invited to, or you have the opportunity to ask, when everyone's back sitting down and has done that, to ask someone else to tie the string on your wrist, or you could put around your ankle, or I think they're big enough to get round. Mm, just about, maybe not. <laughs> maybe not quite around your neck, but uh, there would be other options if you wished. It's not obligatory. You don't have to do this. But just to have a sense of what it might be that you wish to devote your heart, your life, your days, and your moments too. 
So I'd just like to invite you to sit quietly for a moment. Just notice how this lands for you, if this lands for you. No expectation that it's somehow something you should be doing or need to. But if it's something that you might be interested to explore, what it is to find a vehicle for some devotion in your practice or in your life. May we all be touched by the heart's remarkable potential for for peace and freedom, and for the and be touched equally by the remarkable current that flows in humanity that carries this potential, that manifests it, and that continues to offer and extend it generation upon generation in this world and beyond. And so I'd like to invite Catherine and Pascal to come and join me up here. I think Catherine's going to teach us a chant and we'll sit on the steps. Do you want this? This is a compassion chant. It's an Omane Padme Hung, different than the one we did the other day in the meditation, which had the tender aspect in its quality. This one has the active aspect in its qualities. At least that's how it's written and um, how I I feel it. You may feel something different. For those of you uh, who don't know, and I'm sure many of you do, in in Tibet, where this chant, this Om Mani Padme Hung, is a is a moment-to-moment prayer for many, many people as a way to train and steady the mind. There are these prayer wheels with Om Mani Padme Hung written in Tibetan script that people walk past and just, you know, kind of whoosh, swirl the wheel around so that the prayer grows, goes round um, and the intention goes round and they're reminding themselves of their orientation. And this melody is um, written by some, some people who write melodies for these things. And it's with that in mind. 
So it has that kind of rolling aspect to it, that kind of keeping on going, that keeping on going that where compassion comes into action, as well as that uh, the beautiful, exquisite place in the heart that we know as well. So um, it's quite simple. And let yourself have your belly in it as well, because it's got action, takes our limbs uh, coming into action. Mm-hmm. You want the mic? So I just realized before we begin the chanting, I wanted to say to invite you to come and receive. So just offer your hands in whatever way you like, and we'll actually give you. The uh, string, rather than coming in the way we might sometimes think, I'll oh, I'll take one, and to kind of feel free to kind of move down through the center space as well as around the outside, and maybe when you have yours, you can go around the back, so let other people come forward, and then come back to your place in some way like that. So let's let's do it a little bit together first before we start moving. So we get we generate the like we make one big prayer wheel between us with our bodies and our voices as well. Um, okay, I was just going to tell you about the embellishments you can do, but I won't tell you about <laughs> on it. Okay, so it goes. <clears throat> Om Mani Padme Hung, Om Mani Padme Hung, Om Mani Padme Hung. So it has four bits. I think the first two are the same. The third one does goes down a bit and the fourth one's slightly different. So I'll do this with my hands as we get it. <clears throat> Om Mani Padme Hung, 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 Om Mani Padme Hung. Om Mani Padme Hum. 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 
Om Mani Padme Hum 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 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Time now for, well, there's, let's take uh, 20 minutes. It's now just quarter to nine. So if the bell could be rung at nine o'clock, and we'll gather in here just after that for a last quiet sitting together of the evening. And I'll just say a little bit about what will be happening tomorrow morning at the end of that. So come along. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.